The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Namo Atasa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambhutasa Namo Atasa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambhutasa Namo Atasa Bhagavato Arahato Samhasambhutasa Udhang Dhammang Sanghanamasami Pleasure to be here. I think you all have a, a lot of good karma in the past to have such good and experienced teachers such as Joanne and Michael. Even when I was just beginning out on the path of meditation and exploring Buddhism already, uh, they were senior teachers, had a lot of experience in that was. We don't want to talk about how long ago it was. <laughs> <laughs> Over 20 years ago. <coughs> so I always felt a uh, sense of gratitude to the early teachers. Something special about them. People who helped to plant the seeds. And then later in life, when the tree starts growing a bit, you, know, you think it back and how fortunate we were to have those seeds planted by other people who were looking out for their wealth, our welfare, and sharing their experience. There's no plan for today's talk. What would you like me to talk on? Harmony in the Sangha. Harmony in the Sangha. There's always an interaction between the conventional and the ultimate. So on one hand, we're working both with purifying our own hearts and at the same time automatically we're living in a society we're living in a web of relationships whether they're spiritual relationships with uh, a community of like-minded Buddhist practitioners or we're living in a relationship with uh, partners, friends, families and the wider relationship to the whole society Really, it's, you, you can't make a clear distinction between what we're doing for so-called ourselves and what we're doing for so-called the greater whole. Because even those concepts take us away from the reality. The reality is it's all, it all is just flowing in harmony. And we just get ourselves out of the way then harmony is naturally there. 
so that principle holds true certainly when we're sitting meditation we see all of the the forces in our minds the, um, sometimes conflicting aspects of our minds think, well wouldn't it be nice if my body and mind and everything was just in perfect harmony in our hearts and it's and then it's good to reflect well what are the things which are obstacles to harmony what are the uh, the um, where are the attachments? If there's not a sense of perfect harmony, sense of contentment and peace, then then there's attachment somewhere. Somewhere we're holding on. There's clinging, craving. And then we can use the contemplative mind to look and investigate. Well, where, where is the holding on? Where is the grasping? Where, what is it? Keep going back to the source, back to the source investigating and then if we do that quite often we can get a clearer idea of where we're holding on say oh well, that's it it's merely my attachment to say reputation or my attachment to wanting praise and not wanting blame or my attachment to physical discomfort comfort and when we can narrow it down to some of these pinpoints <coughs> closer and closer to the source then it's easier to say oh, actually even if I don't get praised it will still be fine there hasn't been a person in the world who only gets praised even the Buddha you would think of all the beings to ever have been born who are worthy only of praise. Well, even the Buddha got a lot of blame and criticism. So, well, if he did, then certainly we can expect that we'll get some in our lives. And just to be at peace with that and accept that, both for the harmony of our own heart and, and within a group, within a, within a particular group, especially for leaders of a group, then it's just part of what the responsibility that we take on. So, well, when you're the leader of a group, whatever you decide, some people are going to like it, some people aren't. It's, in, it's impossible that everyone's going to like decisions that we make all the time. And we just have to be at peace with that and learn how to continue on with the best of intentions and, and the greatest sense of clarity coming from the right place. But if there's too much concern about everyone agreeing all the time or only being praised, never being criticism, again, it's, it's a It's not our business. Our business is, is, is focusing on accepting what's happening, what's arising, whatever comes our way, whatever is the result of our past karma, and responding to that in a wise way, 
what other people think, that's totally out of our control. Even what other, even what we think is totally out of, out of our control. <laughs> even the thoughts arising in our own heart. Meditators will be familiar with how out of control the process of thought can be. You tell the mind to say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a silence, quiet mind, and the thought chatters on. Can I let go of this issue? And the issue keeps perpetuating itself. Well, if my own mind's <coughs> out of control, certainly other people's minds are totally out of control. It's not our business. Other people's opinions, that's just part of the world. Our responsibility is to, to pay attention to <coughs> how we respond to that with a sense of acceptance. Whatever's arising is pleasant or unpleasant sense of acceptance, being at peace with it. Now there are a lot of things we can do to assist the process of harmony, both internally and externally, and, and ultimately this distinction between internal harmony and external harmony starts to fall away, and just focusing on wholesome qualities arising and passing away, and they manifest both individually and socially. Developing a sense of empathy is very helpful. Putting ourselves in someone else's place, trying to understand someone else's perspective. So what would it be like if I was sitting in their chair? I was in their shoes, if I was on their meditation cushion, what's their perspective and try to understand from that point of view. And even just that bit of per perceptual shift can do a lot to open our heart to a variety of views. And when communicating, with people who are practicing the Dhamma, it's not, it's not realistic or important that everyone shares the same opinions. What's far more important is that there's a, a mutual respect for everyone's opinions. Because if we're really practicing Dhamma, then we see in every situation that arises, we're all looking at it from different angles. We're all looking at the same situation from a different cultural conditioning, from a different personal history conditioning, from the particular mood we're in at that particular time. And this very much shapes how we perceive a reality. And how we perceive an event may change from day to day. If we're in a particular mood, something happens, we perceive it one way. If we had been in a different mood, then we might have perceived it in a different way. And so then we get together and we, we share and we say, oh, reality is like this. So no, reality is like this. Situations like this. No, 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 that's wrong. Situations like this. So well, everyone's right. We're all just seeing it from different facets. 
that old story of the elephant and the blind man. Got a, got a dozen blind men hanging around an elephant. One's got the trunk, one's got the tail, one's got the feet, one's touching the, the sides of the elephant. And one's hanging under the tusk and, and you ask them, well, what's an elephant like? You know, the one who's got the trunk is saying, well, elephant, you know, an elephant's kind of like a big, thick snake. And uh, the other one's got the foot. He said, no, an elephant's like, like a big wastebasket or something heavy and round. And, and uh, another one says, no, you're crazy. Elephants, you know, this big mass inside and the tusk is, no, no, the elephant's smooth and very hard. The tail, totally different as well. So, in a sense, we're all a bit blind. Until we reach full awakening, we're all a bit blind. And we only see reality from certain angles. We see little glimpses of reality. And we see reality through a certain veil of delusion, which is just normal for unenlightened beings. But it is good to keep that in mind when we're living in community and expressing opinions and say, well, we can say, this is my perspective. This is how I see something. This is my understanding. And at the same time, recognizing that this is merely my perception. This is merely my understanding. And it's one, or merely one way of seeing the situation. And if someone else sees the situation totally differently, this, that's not necessarily a problem. In fact, everyone is going to be seeing the situation totally differently. Ultimately, we are living in our own realities, our own worlds, because the world is what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, cognize with our minds. So in a very real, in a very real sense, we are living in our own worlds, not just a metaphor. But even for those people who are very mindful, aware, wise, and sensitive, literally we're living in our own worlds. And there is a sense of interaction, a sense of um, influencing each other. But when it comes down to, let's see, living together harmoniously as a group of people, then it's very important to, to keep in mind that, well, this is the way I see things. And I can offer one perspective. And say, well, how do you, how do you see the situation? And you see it from this perspective. I say, oh, well, that's interesting. Geez, that's very different than the way I perceive it. How do you see it? Oh, that's even different than the way we see it. Oh, isn't that wonderful that there's so many different ways of viewing a situation and that we don't have to decide which one is right and which one is wrong. Because in a sense, they're all right. Or probably more accurately, they're all wrong. <laughs> until, we're, until we're fully awakened, all of our perceptions are inaccurate. 
And in that way, there's a real sense of harmony. We're all wrong. <laughs> we all have a lot in common. <laughs> of course, speech is a very powerful aspect of our lives. How we use speech, the karma that is made from speech. The essence of karma is intention. When, uh, when there's a movement of mind, like a, a motivation in the mind, then it manifests as thoughts. And from thoughts it can manifest into speech. The Buddha was very practical and he many times taught on different ways of, of working with speech, practicing with speech. It wasn't just about sitting meditation, closing your eyes, following your breath. But there are many suttas talking about the things we encounter in daily life. So for example, with speech, even before we say something, we'll check, well, is it true? At least in my own perspective, do I perceive it as true? If it is, then let's go ahead and say it. And if it's if it's not, even if it seems to be like a little harmless white lie, then the Buddha would say, mm, don't, don't utter it. It's better to keep quiet. Because even if it's a so-called white lie, still, if we're dedicated to truth, then it's good not to perpetuate any, anything that's untrue. And also the basis of trust in relationships <coughs> is a, a trust that people are speaking the truth, that they would never deceive us in even the smallest of ways. And we can reflect before we speak, and as we're speaking, is what we're saying beneficial? We're seeing, seeing the results of it. Sometimes we, we, before we speak, we think, yes, this will be really beneficial, then why we're speaking, it seems to be less and less beneficial, and if we're mindful of the whole process of why we how we communicate and when we're communicating, and then that can guide the direction of our speech. And when it no longer seems to be beneficial, then it's good to maybe end. Finding the right time and place for saying things. This is a real art. No one can tell you exactly when the right time and place is to to express views and opinions. But clearly, even if uh, even if an opinion is from our perspective true and it would seem to be beneficial, if we say it at the wrong time, then it's not going to have a positive effect. So this again is comes down to a, developing a sense of sensitivity which is based on awareness, mindfulness of the situation, mindfulness of where we're at, mindfulness of where other people are at. And then noting, before we say something, or as we're about to say something, where is it coming from? What mental states are we experiencing at the time? And if we find that it seems to be the right time and place, but we're just not in the right mental space for 
for expressing something with loving kindness. You know, for if we're feeling agitated, then whatever we say, the listener will tend to pick up on the emotional content. Maybe even more than the actual concepts. So that's very important. Coming from a place of loving kindness, compassion. Why are we saying something? What mood are we in at that time? What, what, what mental state and how pure is the mental state that we're in at the time we're speaking? So these are all very practical ways that we can encourage harmony through communication. Now when we sit meditation, quite often we're sitting in a group. And although meditation seems to be a solitary activity, quite often, well, in Zen tradition, you sit meditation facing the wall rather than the other people. It seems to be a very solitary activity. But at the same time, well, especially in Japan, for example, it's a it's a very much a group activity. The lifestyle is very group oriented. And that always is an important aspect of developing a spiritual path, having the support of a community. Feeling grateful for having a community of people who are supportive of us, even if it merely means getting together regularly, gathering in harmony, discussing things, working them out, departing in harmony. That's a tremendous support for, for all of the individuals. We're all very fortunate if we have a, a spiritual community. So the dynamics of the spiritual path and community need to be paid attention to. Traditionally, a lot of attention and teachings are given around the individual's progression along the path of the Dhamma. But there's not always a lot said, at least in traditional Buddhist circles, about, well, how do we get along harmoniously as a community? And so we might spend time and, and develop skills in sitting meditation, but then when it comes to community life, suddenly we seem to be children again, arguing, bickering, I want this, I want this, this is, you know, and it comes down to some very basic attachments based on the sense of self, based on reputation, praise, blame, who we think we are, what we, the way we think things should be. 
which is getting further and further from actual reality. As soon as we start projecting the way we think things should be, then it's a good, it's, it's a little red light that should go off in our minds. Well, who's to say? Who's to say things should be that particular way? This is the way things are, and that's what. This is what we have to work with. This is the way things are. And then from that, we accept, mindful, aware, and then try to respond in a wise way. The Buddha knew that after his death, keeping a, a huge Sangha in harmony was going to be a high priority by the time that he had passed away. There were tens of thousands of monastic disciples, hundreds of thousands of, of lay disciples. And those who were fully enlightened, they had no problem living in harmony. But keeping a huge group together like that and maintaining a sense of harmonious direction and mutual support is not an easy thing. Even amongst the most sincere, uh, good-hearted people, if you get a, a group together, just maintaining a sense of harmony is a real challenge. And that just seems to be part of the way humans are. <laughs> and it's not different than practice. Practice does not necessarily only mean sitting on your cushion with your eyes closed. But practice very much can also mean how are we doing with the people around us and what mind state is that bringing up? Community life. The Buddha would uh, set down certain guidelines or recommendations before he passed away, he said, you know, if the Sangha is to remain in harmony, here are some guidelines. One is when uh, the group, a group that comes together and gathers frequently, that's going to be a cause for harmony. Even just getting together, even if it's just getting together in silence, So a sense of mutual support and gathering frequently. And then gathering in harmony, not gathering with a sense of but gathering gathering in harmony and then discussing things, interacting things, interacting with each other. During that time, there may be differences of opinions, differences of styles, uh, who knows what can come up. But then when it's time to depart, to depart in harmony. Gathering frequently, gathering in harmony, and departing in harmony. This is very important. Respect for elders is very important. It's, it's a quality which is very developed in Asia, but is almost, it's almost anti-Western in the way that we're brought up, in the sense of respect for elders. It, it's there a bit, but, but it's not highly developed. Um, 
youth tends to be more glorified more. Where in Asia, the older you get, the more respect you get. So it's good to be young here in the West, and when you start to get old, go to Asia. <laughs> but even within our own culture here, I think, well, well, certain people have been doing their particular profession or path for a long time, and they've been gathering experience, and it's worthy to, to listen to their opinion. You know, we live in a democratic society where everyone's got equal votes, equal opinions, but at the same time, we're balancing that with sense of, well, certain people have a lot more experience than us in certain areas, and so it makes sense to, to listen to what they have to say. In our Sangha, for example, uh, all the abbots of the monasteries, in the Western monasteries around the world, get together every few years. And when we discuss things, it's kind of like a ballet. There's no strict and formal rules. And we don't make hard and fast rules, usually. Yeah, with the outcomes of our discussions. And how the discussions flow, it's a mix between everyone has the right to say something and at the same time there's a great respect for his seniority. Ajahn Sumedho was has been ordained for decades, longer than any of the rest of uh, of the abbots. And so there's a great sense of deference. And at the same time, he'll never, but he's very respectful of other people's opinions. And that sense of mutual respect uh, pervades the whole gathering. And it's very conducive to a sense of harmony. Quite often in our monasteries, people will, will wonder, should I focus more on the an individual path of developing meditation in solitude, or should I be more involved with the community? And what we found, the best well-rounded training is usually a combination of both, and coming at it from the, for the right reasons. You know, both can be used in a positive way, both can be a way of running away from facing what we should, what it would be good to look at. But generally speaking, both ways, being more uh, involved and engaged in speaking and acting in community affairs and being more in solitary retreat, they'll bring up different things. They will put us in touch with different strengths and weaknesses. And if we only have one way of life, then it tends to be a bit lopsided in our development. And we tend to get blind spots. So if we're only sitting in a cave, and that's our main practice, and we don't have much contact with other people, certain parts of the practice tend to get very well developed. But because of the nature of blind spots, we don't notice that other parts of our character, of, of 
our mind certain attachments that that are not confronted. They uh, they're not challenged. They just lay dormant. Whereas community life, although it's a lot more busy, it's much more difficult to uh, maintain deep states of samadhi within all of the the action. Still, other people's opinions, uh, just being around other people, uh, it's it brings up a lot more stuff in terms of our reaction, how we react to other people, how we uh, interpret what they say, what that brings up in our own minds, uh, why uh, the suffering arise in our own minds if we hear someone else say a particular thing, and where is the attachment? And there's a very fertile field there for developing wisdom and uncovering blind spots and working all the time with with letting go of unwholesome or, or negative reactions and always trying to develop positive ones. Other people are are definitely great teachers. And the people who are always kind and pleasant and considerate and agree with us are not necessarily our best teachers. But it can be very helpful to have people around us who are uh, aggravating, irritating, uh, have different views than we do, and then see what that brings up in our mind. How spacious is our awareness? Can we accommodate their viewpoints? Can we accept that? What does it bring up? What are the reactions? Are we able to, to react in, from a wholesome, wise place? So these are just a few reflections on, on living in harmony. And when we're developing external harmony, we find that when we sit down to meditate, that sense of harmony comes into our own heart. And if we're developing harmony in our own heart while we're meditating, then that automatically translates into a more harmonious group relationship. So this whole dualism between inner and outer starts to fall away uh, the, more we, the more we get ourselves out of the way. Then harmony is already there. So I offer these words for your know, reflection. Would you be willing to take some questions? Sure, I'm happy to answer any questions. Yeah. Um, I think in one of the middle-length discourses, the Buddha investigates a collection of three bhikkhus who are living together in harmony. Right. And talks about and learns from them what it is that they do. Mm-hmm. And I'd, like, I'd like to hear your reflections on that. One of my favorite suttas called the Chula Gosinga Sutta. It's the 31st Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. And uh, there, there's three very good friends. One is the, the Buddhist cousin, Anuruddha, and then he has two friends, Kimbila and uh, Nandiya. And the three of them uh, live together in, uh, 
it seems to be like a park, like a, a park somewhere, because there is actually a, a park gatekeeper, so it seems like a public park that they're living in. Which would be really nice if you could do that around here. <laughs> you know, just just go as a beaker and go live in one of the Minneapolis parks, and and everyone assumes that that's just fine. <laughs> they're literally homeless <laughs> living in a park. And it's a, the whole story is kind of nice because uh, they're practicing there, and the Buddha comes to see them, to see how they're doing. And, and the Buddha at that time, this was in the early years, the Buddha's just walking alone, carrying his bowl, robes, walking through the countryside. He arrives at this place, and, um, and the gatekeeper stops him and says, uh, do not enter here, uh, because there's, there's three monks practicing solitude, they're practicing meditation. Uh, so I don't want you to go in and disturb them. <laughs> and so, and so this is this is significant in a few ways because you know it was clear that the Buddha was was human. <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't three times the size of a normal human being. You know he, he looked relatively human, normal. And uh, Anuruddha then then heard this and he said, no, no, let him in. <laughs> let him in. No, that's our teacher. It's okay. So you can see how how um, you know, they had that great respect for, for solitude and quietude that the gatekeeper was, was trying to, was keeping people away. And so then the Buddha comes in and they, and they uh, take his robes and bow and prepare a seat and sit down and and uh, it's, it's just like the way we do things in the Thai forest tradition, which is, I can visualize it easily. And uh, the teachers on the seat, and then and they sit around, and, and uh, the Buddha asked them, um, how are you doing? Are you keeping well? Yes, we're keeping well. So are you getting enough alms food? So yes, we're getting enough alms food, no problem. Uh, are you dwelling in harmony? Uh, Yes, we're dwelling in harmony. And then the Buddha said, well, how are you dwelling in harmony? What are you doing? And they describe this lifestyle, which then becomes uh, a model. It's kind of like an ideal model for a small group living for, for meditators. And they say, well, we normally live by keeping silence. And even when chores are happening, we don't uh, we don't have to break into speech. We just kind of use sign language and and help each other doing chores. But then every fifth day, every five days, they'll get together and they'll talk dhamma through the whole night and just talk dhamma the whole night and then keep silence again. And uh, they'd all go off in their individual alms rounds, and the first one to come out would set up the places and uh, the first one back if he had any leftover food he'd leave it for the other ones and the last one uh, to finish the meal then would clean everything up you know little things like this lead to harmony it's like who's going to do the dishes <laughs> and and the Anaruda continued on and said well 
in, in private, we, we send out thoughts of loving kindness to each other. And when we're together as a group, we send out thoughts of loving kindness to each other, both in public and private, no difference. And, and they consider, when there's uh, different ways of doing things, they consider, well, how about if we do it the way he would like to do it? rather than the way I would like to do it. And then there's, you know, they're all trying to defer to each other. And say, well, if, you, if there's different, way, different ideas, say, well, how about if we follow his idea? And they're all thinking, how about if we follow your idea? And, and that way it was very easy to avoid some in conflict. And they said, you know, we're, we're living together harmoniously like, like milk and water mixed together. You know, they don't separate. It's not like oil and water. <laughs> oil and water, you have to really sh shake it a lot <laughs> before this thing is mixing. Milk and water just goes together very easily. So yeah, that's a beautiful sutta. The Buddha actually recommended that, you know, after he heard all this and the, the way of life, he said, in the future, anyone who reflects on their way of life, just that reflection, that memory of that way of life, uh, living in harmony, uh, uh, a beautiful spiritual community, that already would be greatly meritorious. And it, it's one of the greatest things that that little group could do, not just for themselves, but as an example, uh, a concrete beneficial example for the whole society because all the villages around there knew and you know, knew how they lived. And just bringing that thought up into their minds brought up happiness. And it was a model. And you know, the ripples from that would spread out, both through space at that time, but through time as well. You know, 2,500 years later, we're still recollecting them and brings up joy. Any other questions? So, um, what would be your 
Well, I have two questions. <laughs> uh, just what's, what's your suggestion? Um, how can the community uh, respond to this hurt? Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's just my primary question. How, uh, how can I respond to my friend's hurt? And how, um, how can the community Hmm. Well, when we talk about respect, we're not we're not talking about blind respect. And respect is both. Well, respect is earned. Sometimes it's earned simply through sticking with something for a long time. Sometimes it's respect that's earned through actually developing some wisdom or collection of wholesome qualities for who the person is. Just because a person is in a, in a leadership position doesn't mean that they have any wisdom or purity of heart. And it's probably one reason why a lot of us do have authority issues. So well, we look at the leaders that we may have had contact with and say, well, if, if they're doing things which are actually harming other people, then it, that destroys so much that sense of trust and respect. Uh, which are, are so much the, the building blocks of a harmonious society. So from the leadership, from the leader's position, there's a tremendous responsibility to live within a moral framework which is worthy of respect. And to violate that moral framework uh, is, is, is extremely damaging for everyone involved. You can see how you know, the effects from one incident or a series of incidents can just carry on for decades or you know, a lifetime. Powerful stuff. When we're talking about the, the karma that we make with our actions and the decision, the intentional decisions that we make, it has a lot of karma consequences. And there's a tremendous responsibility there, which we need to be conscious of, aware of, and, um, and mature enough to approach it with, from a position of not just what I want in, in this moment, but what's beneficial for the whole. So certainly all of us need to be thinking in those terms. And then as we get more and more experience, in life or particular fields or as a teacher then then hopefully we'll have um, deepened that we'll get more experience in that sense of responsibility for looking after a community when you get into situations that uh, bad karma has already been made someone's someone is, is uh, hurt 
on the ultimate level, no one can hurt anyone else. But there can be breaches of trust, and people experience very deep pain. And so when that happens, then it's important to, to try to do something to heal that, not just let it fester, not just ignore it. I mean, time itself doesn't is not going to heal. It can carry on. Even death is not necessarily going to heal. You can pick it up in the next lifetime. Certainly addressing it is important, but addressing it not from a, a uh, a standpoint of this is unjust, I'm angry, we have to do something about this, someone needs to be punished. Already that's coming that's coming from an angle that is not necessarily going to be healing and can actually make the situation worse. But if it's coming from a place of there's pain here and can we as a community empathize with that pain? Can we somehow support the person in their pain? Can we somehow uh, acknowledge the situation fully, no bit of denial, without falling into judgmental attacks? Which doesn't mean to say that, say, spiritual leaders who have uh, maybe in, in some ways done, done something inappropriate that has led to pain. Uh, if uh, it doesn't mean that that anything goes in a spirit of non-judgmentalism. But when something has already happened, then we need to acknowledge the karmic consequences. Say, well, when this person did this and this situation arose, this was how it played out, and it played out in a, in a rather painful way. Then um, try to learn something from it. Human beings aren't very good uh, about learning from history, although we talk about it a lot, how important it is to learn from history. But really, if, if we, if a situation happens, even if it's unpleasant, difficult, painful, if we can learn something from it, both individually and as a group, then yeah, it's not a wasted opportunity. You can, you can, that's the silver lining of a, of a difficult situation. How do we, how do we prevent such a, a situation from arising in the future? And not, not falling into the trap of, I'm a victim. Uh, blaming and punishing others, but more from more from the attitude of, well, we're all potentially capable of such things. We're all potentially capable of of harming other people. We're all potentially capable of of breaching uh, a, a sense of expected morality. We're all potentially capable of killing someone if if circumstances put us in, in that, uh, push us in a particular way. So reflecting in that way, say, well, say, we're all, you know, we all, 
none of us can really get on the moral high ground and say, well, in, in a point where we can, where we're justified in, in uh, saying, well, I'm right and you're wrong, and all of that. So if we can take the self, self-centeredness out of it a bit, because even for the people who, who get harmed, there can be a lot of, I mean, it can be a, like, almost like a selfish indulgence sometimes. I'm not saying this is the case, but, but that can be one of the things which perpetuates it. And ultimately, we, we really need to find ways to, to move on, to let go, to deal with it, and really set it down. Not to move on in the sense of pretend it didn't happen, but, but you know, deal with it and, and allow it to, to be set down, release that burden. Um, so, how can Sangha friends help uh, someone who has suffered in this way um, move on? What are some concrete beneficial things that you would like <coughs> uh, for a friend to help another friend who has um, suffered because of a breach of trust? <coughs> if they're willing to talk about it, talk speaking openly, discussing it. Uh, if there's a very, if someone has been hurt or abused or feels that way, then there can be all sorts of intense, sometimes conflicting emotions. And just having someone who they absolutely trust, who, who they can open up to, that's already a huge gift to someone. Just, just being a trustworthy listener and supportive friend, uh, that's already a, a huge gift. Because with, with the anger, there can also be a sense of, say, well, a self-judgment. And, and you know, maybe that I did something to, to bring this on myself, to myself, or, or you know, neurotic guilt that is irrational, whatever. But just having someone there who who they can open up to is, is a huge help. And the listener doesn't have to be a psychoanalyst, you know, saying, oh, well, this is this and this is this. You don't have to. But just, just being there wholeheartedly for a person in a non-judgmental way, and trying to empathize and understand where they're coming from, uh, that could be very helpful. Being a mediator can be helpful. If two people are having conflict, it can be just too difficult for them to sit down together. There's just, it's just too much getting in the way. But if you have a third person who both people trust, then sitting down as a mediator to help facilitate uh, a conversation so that it can come to a greater sense of mutual understanding. And then the facilitator's job would be to, if someone really starts to, to, to go too far from the place of balance or, or they start to get in, rather than expressing things from their own perspective, they start to get into blaming, accusations, then an immediate could just say, you know, um, please just, just express from your own perspective. And uh, that can be very helpful, very practical thing.
couple of five years. Uh, now we'll uh, do the Bodhisattvas for the hours, uh, Canada will do call and response, and then we will offer food to the monk. <coughs> so, okay. Call and response. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Beings are are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. I vow to become Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.